Savan Pelvetsian heads up Civic Action, an independent organization that uses a collaborative approach to come up with solutions to some of the most pressing urban challenges. Civic Action has been around for nearly 15 years, starting as a Toronto-specific city-building organization and expanding to cover the greater Toronto and Hamilton areas. Civic Action is considered to be the premier civic engagement organization in the country. And our model is every four years we have a big summit and we reload our issue dance card. And then we invite leaders from all the sectors to collectively do something about the issues that we have decided are important. Sometimes those issues have involved youth unemployment, mental health in the workplace, uh, energy use by the office sector here, the commercial office sector. And so uh, our organization very much thrives in a collaborative environment, a results-driven environment, um, I like to say we're civic action, we're not civic chit-chat. Following her achievement of a master's in American history, Savon left Canada for an internship in Washington, D.C., where she worked with a program called Presidential Classroom. And what started as a four-month internship turned into a four-year adventure in the American capital. So those four years were incredibly impactful for me. And I worked not only for, um, for Presidential Classroom, I ended up working for them after the internship ended, but then went to work at the World Bank Group uh, for a couple of years as well. Loved it. Loved it. Dynamic and interesting people. And every language was spoken in the elevator and the cafeteria, you can imagine, was filled with the most extraordinary foods. And, and then September 11th happened. And it wasn't a reason to leave America, but it started to feel different. And I am a proud Canadian, was born and raised in Canada, studied in Canada and decided it was time to come home to Canada. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, Savon talks about her very first and most valuable mentors, her parents. She gives some tips on how to find your voice and make sure you own your seat at the table, whether it be a kitchen table, classroom table, or a boardroom table. Savon Pelvetsian on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. I'm really excited today to be in the Civic Action offices, where I'm speaking with Savan Pulvatsian, uh, the CEO of Civic Action. Uh, Savan, thank you so much for joining me for an episode of Run It Like a Girl. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun. I'm really excited. It's already been fun, <laughs> yes. so I can't even imagine what it's going to get like. <laughs> um, so maybe I would love to start, let's just start uh, kind of the beginning for you and and your career journey. You, uh, you after school, you headed down to Washington. So maybe if you can tell us a bit about what that was like, and then your journey to becoming the CEO of, uh, of this great organization. So I thought from when I'm a little girl that I would actually be a lawyer and then potentially a judge. Like probably since I was about seven years old, that's what I expected my path to be. And so I started off in university and uh, was going to take some political science classes and then head to law school and off we go. I needed to fill a spot in my calendar and I plugged it with a history class. On the first day of undergrad, I had my first full day of classes and the political science module at the time was so boring <laughs> and such an arid way to present this material because I actually now find political science incredibly exciting but at the time the way it was taught it was awful and my history professor as a comparison you know at one point got up on the desk in front of 250 first year university of western ontario students and did a slave dance to show us what the, like and i thought i'm switching my major <laughs> this is way cooler so i ended up following into the path of history 
and ended up doing my master's in American history. I still thought maybe I'd go to law school, uh, wrote the LSAT, and to fill a summer, I uh, went to Washington, Washington D.C. to be an intern. That was with an organization called Presidential Classroom. And because I'd studied American history, I guess they figured I had some semblance of knowledge on something useful. So I went down to be an intern for four months. Four years later, I was still there. And the summer that I was an intern was the summer that Monica Lewinsky, that story was breaking. Remember that craziness? So I look back at that era, and I think about... um, what that town represented, you still could get a lot done between Democrats and Republicans. It taught me a lot about what a thick skin felt like, because you'd see it on the Hill, and in particular, you'd see female congresswomen and senators, like what they'd need to deal with. And then you also saw the churn, uh, where the personal life and the political life were beginning to melt, right, with the, with the Lewinsky scandal. So those four years were incredibly impactful for me. And I worked not only for, um, for presidential classroom, I ended up working for them, after the internship ended, but then went to work at the World Bank Group uh, for a couple of years as well. Loved it. Loved it. Dynamic and interesting people. And every language was spoken in the elevator and the cafeteria, you can imagine, was filled with the most extraordinary foods. And then September 11th happened. And it wasn't a reason to leave America, but it started to feel different. And I am a proud Canadian, was born and raised in Canada, studied in Canada and decided it was time to come home to Canada. And so, um, and so I did and Toronto became home. And so do you think that is when this shift, I guess it is, 9-11 is kind of when the shift happened in the States where people, I don't know, where people kind of changed? You know, in our lives, all of us have those, let's call them the top five moments where something external changes something internal in you. Um, and certainly at that point in my life, my age and stage, 9-11 did, did affect me deeply, as it did many millions of us. So, but there are other examples of big milestones and moments that have also changed me deeply uh, and have charted sort of the path that I find myself on. And, and with many steps of privilege along that way, I, t- I don't take hope. I don't take that which I've been so fortunate to get to do in terms of experiences for granted. And and I certainly give credit to the many people who made big, bold investments in me when the ROI wasn't necessarily obvious from the outside. Yeah, yes. And I think I like what you said, people that took investments in you. So along your way, have there been key people that have really kind of made a difference in your career and what you've done and how you feel about yourself? Dozens, starting with my parents. My mom and dad, um, uh, my father's no longer with us, but my parents have had a beautiful marriage and an incredible set of values that were instilled in the five of us as kids. I'm the eldest of five. My four siblings and I are very tight. Uh, we, we choose to hang out all the time, which is pretty special. And my daughters uh, love spending time with their cousins and their aunties and uncle and grandparents. So... Uh, my parents, I would say, were my first mentors and investment, and they helped to instill in me a sense of values, right? uh, integrity, uh, a sense of work. Uh, my father, his father had come to Canada to escape the Armenian Genocide, and so as an immigrant and arriving here at age 12, um, hard work really it was the value differentiator 
for what was going to be able to have his subsequently his children and grandchildren go to graduate school, right? Like that's kind of surreal that the five kids, we all have passports and multiple degrees. When two generations ago, our mid-sighting, my grandfather, you know, escaped a war-torn country and came here at 12 with nothing. So that trajectory isn't possible in many places. It is possible here. And, and that investment started in the roots of my family. Since then, oh gosh, mentors, sponsors, champions, advocates, agitators in all the right ways, and men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, People who said, I'm going to spend a bit of extra time with you. I'm going to take you out in the hallway after that meeting, give you some advice on how you may want to frame the issue differently to appeal to even more people. Like those little catch moments is really... um, they become a skill set when they're collected over time. And uh, I have so many mentors that I give huge credit to um, for, for stopping their day to invest in those moments with me. And, and I want to hopefully do the same for years to come. Yes. I guess I think, I think that's, I think that's great. And you know, it's been a theme through all of our guests mm. is that mentorship just plays such an important role in people's lives and, and how they can do and what is it? What does it say that uh, you know? It takes. What did um, one of the partners at PBC said in a session that you know someone can say something bad to you, and it takes so much longer mm-hmm. to recover from that mm-hmm. than someone building you up. So mm-hmm. the more mentors you can have, the more people that build you up. Totally. The better you'll give back. And those moments too, if you can, can you know, some of my mentors I'll grab dinner with every you know once a quarter or something like this, or a coffee, or even just a phone call. Or an email if something is going crazy and I just need to touch base with somebody smart and get some good sound counsel. It's almost like life gets to push the pause button in those moments. And the outside stimulus stops and you get to hone in on a part of your personal development that someone else is going to meet you um, in that place and invest in that moment, right? So the outside world kind of stops and we're really good at making investments in hard hardware, in software in our, in our businesses, in uh, making sure that we're skilled up in some professional skills. But we aren't as good generally at doing the professional development of ourselves. So good mentors make that happen and make that a priority for you. I consider it almost like a boot camp for, for my, my intellectual self, these kind of experiences. At the core of good mentoring relationships, at the core of relationships, period, has to be authenticity and trust. Yes. And uh, I think both sides need to be able to meet in the middle on both of those things, or it's not going to produce the same outputs as a relationship that has them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I love, maybe we can talk a little bit on the line of authenticity and authentic leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does authentic leadership look like? You. you know, there's that Greek god, um, is it Janus, J-A-N-U-S, I'm not sure how it's how you would pronounce it, uh, the two faces. You know? And so often in history, that's what leadership looked like. There was the, like you think about FDR, back to my history, my American history roots. FDR as a president, he was in a wheelchair for most of that time. Public didn't know. <laughs> Right? Like, can you imagine how wild that is? But there was a time where you had your professional self and then you had your personal self. I think because the world of social media has changed things, it has edited the edges. They don't exist anymore because of the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, and because uh, I believe as humans, we are always searching for, 
for connectivity, like authentic connectivity. For a bunch of those reasons, authentic leadership has become more than a catchphrase. It's become the holy grail. And so for me, it's, it's something when I look back on those mentors and folks that I share with you, that is a common theme to every single one of them. And when I think out to my amazing civic action team on the other side of this door here, they're, they are one of the most authentic bundling of people I've ever had the privilege to work with. And they do better work because there isn't a facade. And I think you can connect with more people when there isn't one. Um, uh, and it's just a whole lot less to have to track mentally if you're being real all the time. You don't have to remember what the key message is to this or what was the story I was saying on that. It's not, you don't have to do it. There's no drama. There's no drama. And that's, uh, I try to live by that policy. Yes. Well, I think it makes such a more, uh, um, a, a good place to work. Yeah. If, if the drama is cut out. And maybe let's talk a little bit about that because uh, I'd be interested to know, so civic action. So, um, so what, do you, what does your organization do? What are, what, are you, uh, what are you actively working on? We sit in the middle of civic engagement and urban issues. So we exist, we've been around for about 15 years. And in the series of those 15 years, we started as a Toronto-specific city-building organization and then spread to be the region, the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area. And our model is every four years we have a big summit and we reload our issue dance card. And then we invite leaders from all the sectors to collectively do something about the issues that we have decided are important. Sometimes those issues involve youth unemployment, mental health in the workplace, uh, energy use by the office sector here, the commercial office sector. And so uh, our organization very much thrives in a collaborative environment, a results-driven environment. Um, I like to say we're civic action. We're not civic chit-chat. So we like to get stuff done, but we do it through a cavalry that gets built, right? And there's something quite magical about that. In this job, which I've been in almost five years, you know, with any job, sure, there are some days that aren't as great as others. But honest to God, this has renewed my faith in humanity to a, an unbelievable level. It, it, I get to see the soft underbelly of civic, uh, the big civic hearts that truly do pulse in, in very important leaders, right, who have big jobs and important titles and big budget lines and lots of responsibility. And I get to see and we get to see those folks kind of make other backyards just as important as their own, in some cases even more. And, uh, and that fills me with, with a, lot of, um, a lot of hope, actually, and certainly more optimism than I ever thought possible. Well, it's always good to like coming to work. And in your role, where you get to say makes such a difference to the city and to your communities that you live in. How do you think you extend it beyond to, to, the, to you know, not just women, but everybody? How do you get people to find their voice mm. and to stand for what they believe in? How do you encourage the confidence for people mm-hmm. to do that? In my case, and I have two daughters, um, I was fortunate to be raised in a house where the kitchen table was my first classroom. And so we had, my dad in particular, would talk about issues of the day, and we as kids would engage in a discussion around the table, right? And we didn't have dinner together every night as a family of seven, but we did many. So I learned uh, how to understand issues, and importantly, how to debate issues. My girls uh, will often have dinner again, around our dinner table, our, our, our kitchen table, and we play this game. Um, and what happens is I pick a city-building topic, 
and then I don't tell the kids which side they are. One is for, one is against, right? Uh, so we did one. We did Young Street. You know the bike lanes? There's yes. big discussion. Should we put bike lanes down the middle of Young or down the side of Young Street? So one of my daughters was arguing yes. One of my daughters <laughs> had to argue no. And it was fascinating to hear their little kid views on why yes or why no. I'm not doing that so that they understand the value of bike lanes on Young Street. That's helpful. I'm doing that so that they understand what it's like to hear their voice. Being able to own your seat at a table, whether it's the kitchen table, the boardroom table, the classroom table, is not innately given to us. It is a skill like anything else. And it needs to be honed, I believe, at a young age for it to really be lasting. I do this with my daughters because, frankly, it was done with me. And I know the confidence that comes from being able to own that seat at the table. One of the things I love about our work here at Civic Action, we run these leadership programs for the next generation of civic leaders, half of whom are women. And we get to watch in live time, in real time, uh, this incredible development, their professional development. And in some cases, their professional trajectory gets shaved down by as much as 10 years because they just rocket ship into these cool levels. And so one of those skills that we try to work with our leaders in our fellows program and in our broader emerging leaders network is in finding your voice, right? articulating your view, holding your own. How do you debate? How do you manage the media? And uh, there's no silver bullet, but it is something we need to talk about more and support each other with, with actual skills in getting there. I guess, I think, I think that's so important. I think, um, I also find it interesting, you know, when I, I'd love your perspectives as, as kind of a woman who's come up through, um, you know, a political scene that isn't always as friendly to women as it is to men. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> shocking or not. Um, uh, how did that play a role in how you presented yourself? Or how mm. did you make sure, like you've talked a lot about it, and I can see that it's actually come from the foundation of how you grew up mm. to how you can do that. So if, if there were three things that you would say to a woman who's about to go into a meeting with a room full of people, mm-hmm. probably not too many look like her, mm-hmm. how do you ensure your voice is heard? So the first thing I would say to her would be a pep talk in the, pep talk in the hallway, which would be something like, uh, all right, you're going to go in there. You're going to put your big girl pants on. Okay. That's what we say in our house. You're going to put your big girl pants on and you're going to go in there and uh, you're going to listen because actually part of finding your voice is about being an active listener. Sometimes um, people listen to hear when the other person is stopping to talk so that they can get their point in. That's not active listening. And it also means that your point, point may not be that relevant because it's not linked to something broader. So active listening is a, is a really important point in finding your own voice at the table. It's ironic, but it's there. Um, the second is to understand that you got into that room for a reason. I have this young woman, uh, um, and she's amazing, and I've spent some time with her over the last few years and watched her grow. She's amazing. But the first time, the reason I, I got to know her, I saw her in two subsequent meetings. She was representing an organization. At each of those meetings, she said nothing. Now, these were big tables, Bonnie, like 20 people, very important folks in this city and region, very big jobs. And... I could tell she was, I I suspected she was a bit intimidated by the room, and she was. She said to me in the hallway. So the third meeting, I sat beside her, and I said, I'm going to kick you. I'm going to literally kick you. You got 30 minutes, and then I'm going to tap you under the table. And if you haven't said something, I'm going to say, I think Jesse has something to say. Uh, And it wasn't Jesse, by the way, but I'm just giving a fake name. And so, uh, so she did. And 
sometimes it takes, um, what in this, in this case, this woman said to me, but Sev, I don't know. These people are so smart and they're so whatever. What can I possibly offer? And so the, the second point that I want to make is around you're in the room for a reason. Your perspective is valuable and you just need to get over that mental confidence hook that it's not. And then the third is um, invite yourself, as I said, to a pithy party. Some people go on and on and on, right? <laughs> We've all been in those meetings. You're like, come on, I get it. Now stop making the point. The ability to speak um, in, a, in a pithy manner brevity is key and really make the point sometimes a powerful metaphor can help to to bring an understanding to a lot of folks but uh, a lot of people do not do that either and I find that really does detract from what it is they're trying to achieve so you know I only have one final question for you and I'd love to know that if you were going out for lunch tomorrow with a um, a 20 year old version of yourself uh, what kind of conversation would you have uh, over your oh my god! Show. I'd find her the better. I'd, I'd give her the, uh, the contact information for a better hairdresser. <laughs> Curly hair is hard. Um, my twenty-year-old self. What would I say to her? I would say, you have no idea how cool life's going to get. The I have this tradition every year on my birthday. I write myself a letter. It's, it's as close to regular journaling as I suspect I get. And it's one part the year in review, one part the people in my life that in that moment are really important to me. And one part a year from now when I open this letter, what do I hope? And sometimes stuff in there is professional. Other times stuff in there is, is around personal fun stuff. But um, my 20-year-old self writing her birthday letter would have never imagined what her 40-year-old self would get to write in that letter. So I can't wait to see what the 80-year-old self <laughs> writes in hers, even if writing is a thing <laughs> in the next 40 years. But, um, but that's what I would say. Life is pretty exceptional. And, and be grateful for, what you, for what's coming. Well, Savon, this has been awesome. I just I, I want to thank you so much. For thank you, Bonnie. Welcoming me. Oh, and anytime. You're I welcome. Just, <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> this is at the international headquarters of Civic Action. So you know you know the door code now. You can come anytime. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Run It Like a Girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak. Brian Long is the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk. On the next episode of Run It Like a Girl, Hannah Taylor was only five when she saw a homeless man searching for food in a dumpster. Based on that experience, she started the Ladybug Foundation, which has now raised close to $4 million to fight homelessness in Canada. For her work, Hannah has received an International Humanitarian Award and a Governor General's Award. All of that, and she's only 22. Hannah Taylor on the next episode of Run It Like a Girl.